Hi, I'm Rashma Sajani, the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code. Welcome to Brave, Not Perfect. On this podcast, I talk with up and coming change makers who are leaving their fear of failure behind and letting bravery lead the way. You'll hear from incredible people who are using their skills and talents to make a difference in their community. And I'll ask them about the moments where they decided to be brave, not perfect. I'm really excited about today's guest, Liz Plank. She's an award-winning journalist and executive producer of Divided States of Women at Fox Media. In 2016, she produced and hosted 2016-ish, an award-winning series about the presidential election. And that's not even touching on how incredible she is on Twitter and Instagram with her handle, at Feministabulist. So you're like one of the best reporters that's covering everything from like what's weird to what's wrong and crazy, <laughs> right, in the U.S. right now. You're Canadian. Uh-huh. I love my Canadians. Oh, my God. Like, why are you here? Uh, that's a really good question. My mom asked me that <laughs> every, every day. single day. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm here because I want to make a difference. And I've, I've always actually felt like American in my heart when I was little. And we would like drive to Cape Cod on the during the summers. I just loved like I always like loved America. I watched like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air like I literally learn English, like <laughs> you like watching Fresh Frozen Bel Air, watching Full House. And yeah, like I love this country. I really do. And I also think that there's a lot of work to do and there's a lot of activism here and a lot of amazing people that I've met and, and that I want to make a change with. Um, and America like has a huge influence on the rest of the world. Like yeah. what happens here has ripple effects all over the place. So it's a, I couldn't think of a better place for me to be right now. Your Divided States of Women series is amazing. You've literally traveled the world. Like, what's a story that, like, sticks out for you? Our season finale of Divided States of Women um, was in Iceland. And I tried to go save men (laughs) from the most feminist country in the world. It has the highest gender sort of parity or or, or gender equality. Yeah, I mean, it's it's where you have the most uh, Mm -hmm. female engineers, too. Oh, interesting. It's kind of interesting. I did not even know that part. That's amazing. Yeah, so women uh, and men are almost equal in terms of representation there's uh you know all on so many levels it's, it's a really great place to be a woman and so naturally as we know if it's a good place to be a woman it's a bad place to be a man and so I went <laughs> and I tried to save the Icelandic men and they didn't want my help they were good but then we sat in literally like in like the middle of like ice glaciers and we had a conversation about masculinity about toxic masculinity they know about that there and um they've had a me too movement as well i talked with a male politician there who actually organized like a whole me too like a day of me too to talk about the discrimination against the sexual uh, harassment that happened no against women sorry against women okay. yeah, no he's a good one okay. um, i talked to only good men i couldn't find a single bad one so anyway so I, that was very refreshing and very amazing and and it gave me sort of hope about what a culture can look like even here in the united states where we have someone like Donald Trump who's setting the culture and the tone for what it means to be a man. There are many other ways of being men. And and so it made me very optimistic. So tell me some of that. What, what did you learn there? What did the men say? First of all, they, I think, realized that this is helpful to them, that being gender equality. So one of the great things about being a man in Iceland is that you have parental leave. And so you can spend time with your children and not have to go 
back to work, you know, one day later, that not only takes a pressure off of women, obviously, um, and it means that men are more equal participants in the household and do more housework and take care of the kids more, but also means that they have a really great relationship with their children. And it is amazing for those children, right, to be able to spend time with their fathers. I mean, that's just like one part. I think we don't talk enough about the way that men feel unhappy in a culture that is based and rooted in patriarchy and toxic masculinity where they can't show their feelings they can't be honest about the way that they feel and you know when we talk about a bunch of other issues which I I'm I'm writing a book about this right now so it's like top of mind you know even when we think about the health of men things like suicide things like men being more isolated than women having less social ties having less deep friendships all of those things play into a real sort of threat to their health and men in Iceland have the smallest gender gap between how long women live and how long men live because men are healthier there. Right. Because they don't have all this toxic masculinity. Well, they have a little less. They still have some, right? It's not like this perfect place. And that's the thing that they'll tell you over and over again. You'll be like, this is so feminist. Oh my God, you have like half of women in your parliament. And they're like, yeah, yeah, but like we have so much more to go. Like they don't even, they're not even like patting themselves on the back. You know, one of the things that Tarana Burke said is that what you saw with the Me Too movement is that courage is contagious. Yeah, I love that. And what you really need is for courage to be contagious with men. I mean, there are a lot of men who will say, I'm sitting in a room with a bunch of dudes, someone makes a rape joke, and I feel Mm -hmm. uncomfortable, but I actually don't Mm -hmm. know what to say. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I never really realized Mm -hmm. that maybe they just don't actually have the language or the permission Mm -hmm. to feel or to say what what they actually Mm -hmm. feel. Yeah. And this is an unpopular opinion, but perhaps, but like, I think that Billy Bush showed that to us and actually is one of the few men in the fallout of sort of Me Too or in the sort of what has followed um, after a lot of stories that have come out of that movement, he got fired, lost his job, obviously, but has like written about the topic and has said like, yeah. I shouldn't have done that. And I felt a pressure to laugh at his joke and not to call him out because of toxic masculinity. I don't know if he used the term yeah. toxic masculinity. He like want um, him to. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's like, don't Billy Bush me, right? Like that's what my showrunner Mateen says all the time. He's like, when guys will like put you in a position where they're making a sexist joke, where they're making a rape joke, where they're making a racist joke, like, like don't Billy Bush me. Don't put put me in that corner where I'm participating in this culture. But yeah. to your point, there's no conversation about how to push back against that. You are part of uh, so many uh, important voices that have given women the language to talk about and push back against mm. the gender norms and the gender rules that we've been taught that we didn't even know we had been taught, right? Being like, wow, why don't I speak up? Why don't I think that I can do, you know, things just as good as a guy? Very few men are uh, leading the conversation and feel comfortable having the conversation. And when they, they do, they're called the P word, yep. right? They're called snowflakes. They're called, you know, weak yep. because to challenge the patriarchy somehow means that you are not being strong when actually, to your point, being brave means challenging the status quo. So you're going to write, you're writing out male toxicity, right? Yes. Like, why are you passionate about that? What have you learned? What's blown your mind? Tell yeah, me. Yeah, I think I've written three versions of the book um, and I'm finally <laughs> sort of happy with the version that I have right now. I think that I made the mistake that I think a lot of women make when we sort of are talking about toxic masculinity where we talk about it from our own perspective and how we are hurt by it. And in so many ways we are, right? The patriarchy has so many harmful effects on women. But I think that we don't do enough of a good job of talking about the impacts on men, not because those impacts are more important than the impacts on women, but because 
they exist. And why would we only sort of talk from a woman's perspective and talk about the, you know, sort of harm for women when there's so much harm to men? So, you know, I have a chapter on health, which is, uh, you know, sort of talks about the huge difference in how long men and women live. And Iceland is actually one of the places that has the smallest uh, gender um, gap in in, in terms of life expectancy. And um, Russia, for example, is one of the worst places. And one of the uh, reasons for that is that a lot of men drink a lot of alcohol and the consumption of alcohol is really tied to being a man and what it means to be a man in Russia and not taking care of your health, right? Men are less likely to go to the doctor. Men are less likely to uh, seek preventive care. To be tough and strong. Exactly. They're less likely to see a therapist. There's the gender therapy gap. There's all of these reasons and these ways that, that sort of harm men that come from this idea of what it means to be a man. And we have to talk about how we're all harmed by toxic masculinity because then we realize we're all in this together. And you really saw, we're at the close of the Kavanaugh hearings, right? And all reports say that, you know, Brett Kavanaugh was encouraged to really show his rage and his anger in order to gin up the base and gin up support. And it kind of seems like when you look at some of these exit polls that that Mm. actually worked, not just amongst men, but amongst Republican women. I think it's been really interesting. We talk about these, I mean, obviously the racism dog whistles that are being used by the Republican Party have been going on forever. But there's also sort of gender dog whistles that, yeah. that, you know, Trump has been really good at utilizing. And obviously when they talk about the pain and suffering of Brett Kavanaugh and the pain of suffering that his family has endured as a result of his own actions, let's be honest, unless you don't believe what Dr. Ford said. But I think that they're also doing that to signal to white women something that they should be worried about. And this male victimization is not just about making men sort of worried about what, you know, who's coming after you, but it's also signaling to white women, they're going to come after your sons. Sons and your brothers. And your brothers and your your husbands. husbands. And that's what Brett Kavanaugh said, right, in the hearing where, or in his Wall Street Journal article where he was like, think about me as your son or your brother or your husband. Kellyanne Conway said the same thing. And Don Jr. said, I'm more worried about my sons than I am my daughters. I mean, this is a real big gender dog whistle to white women who, you know, we often talk about white women I'm not American white woman, so I'm, I can only sort of observe and tell you what I know from having conversations with a lot of white uh, female voters. But one of the, I think, underappreciated parts of the reason why they often vote Republican and why so many of them voted for Donald Trump is, yes, they vote with their husbands. And I'm doing I'm doing the bunny ears here. People can't see it. But I think that that is part of it. But the, the, the large part of it is that often white women care more about their husband's well-being than their their own. They care more about their son's well-being than their own. And their son is white, right? Their husband is a white man. And so they're worried about white men, I think irrationally or not irrationally, but like they, they don't need to be. Um, But I think that that really plays into the way that they vote. I mean, you saw this really, even liberals that I've spoken to who were not happy with the changes in policy under the Obama administration for sexual assault in college campuses, Mm. like actually had no issue with the shifts that were being made under the Trump administration to quote, protect their son. I mean, it's fascinating. I have a son, uh, yeah. and 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 I th- I I actually think this kind of dynamic that we're creating between boys and girls is yeah. really, really, yeah. really, really, really frightening yeah. and scary and wrong. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's really interesting because when I talk to parents now and then when I bring up the book I'm writing where I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm actually writing a book about men. And they sort of whisper to me, they're like, I'm more worried about my son than my daughter. Mm-hmm. They don't mean it in the way that Don Jr. said it. They're not worried about them being falsely accused, which is, you know, no, very it's rare. Like, it's, they're worried about them becoming Brett yeah, Kavanaugh I and was, becoming Brock Turner. A friend of mine was saying she was walking down the street. She was, as she overheard a conversation where this woman was like, honey, how do we make sure our son doesn't grow up to be Brett Kavanaugh? Yeah. Oh and my it's God, yeah. so, my son, Sean, is very emotional, mm. has really high. EQ like mm. it's just so kind and yeah I'm constantly thinking about how do I make sure yeah. that someone doesn't come try to like squelch right. this you know for all the things that you're obviously writing about and talking about right and that he's told toughen up yeah and like stop being you know not necessarily so kind but like stop crying over this or don't right. be so upset about this thing be be a tough guy right we sort of squeeze that out of boys and men in order for them to sort of become adults do you worry about how other boys will impact the way that you've raised him? Certainly. Yes, because he's the kind one, mm. and he's the one, you know, he's not, it's just, absolutely, it's yeah. really fascinating kind of watching him, right. and we encourage this, you know, right. like, I cuddle, and I hug him, and I kiss mm. him, and I, I say, I'm so proud of you for being mm. so kind and mm. so nice, mm. and so we encourage that side of him, mm. but yeah, I'm sh- I, I, I need to be really watchful about yeah. that. I think that this is the next layer of the movement. Mm-hmm. And also recognize that most men aren't that way, right? This is another way that I think we underestimate how much this is harmful to men. The way that even just Republicans have talked about Brett Kavanaugh, Kevin Kramer, who's a down-ballot candidate, um, who said, if this is the standard for men, no man will ever be nominated to the Supreme Court, right? So alleged rape is what we expect from men, right? It's 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 not the exception, it's the rule. What does that signal to men? What does that signal about our standard? for men and boys to act. Um, And I really think we're not equipped enough or that we're not having enough of a conversation. We have a lot of conversation about why that's insulting to women, why the whole Brett Kavanaugh stuff has been insulting to women. We're not talking about how insulting it's been for men. Thousand percent. Thousand percent. And I think how many of us just felt angry. I definitely took it out on my feminist husband. I think that that's really the next part of the movement, you know, is really activating our men Mm. who are supportive, who Mm. are as as upset, Mm. you know what I mean, and Mm. as terrified as what it meant for the direction of the country, you know what I mean, as we are. And I think that that's the opportunity. So, you know, I love about you, Liz, is you're so authentic and real about who you are. You know, you recently came out about your sexuality. Like, how how did I you feel oh my god it's so funny my I was just um it was Canadian Thanksgiving I was <laughs> home at, or not home I, I can't go home because I'm anyway I'm green card application so I can't leave the country but I met up with my parents like at the border in Vermont and my mom was just sort of asking me about that and she kind of was like why did you decide to post so quickly about it right and because I literally told them and told my family and then I like couple hours later posted the photo and and sort of had you know this very public also uh, sharing sharing yeah exactly (laughs) and my mom was like a little bit taken aback by that and I just said like I just felt so urgent to me like I just didn't I just wanted it like I'm 31 years old like I'm embarrassed that it took me this long to be truthful to to you about it and to be truthful to so many people around me who 
are fighting for this, right? Are fighting for equality and are fighting for people not to feel shame or embarrassment or have to feel like they need to hide a part of themselves because there's something wrong with themselves. So it felt very like exposing the first few days. I was like, what the frick did I do? And I, yeah, I just felt naked. Like I just, I was like, uh, came into work and I, people were like putting their hands on my, yeah, yeah, yeah. and like, <laughs> And I was like, wait, I, I bet there's people that I don't even know their name, right? I, Fox Media is a big, a big company. And I was like, but they know I'm, you know, they know my sexuality. So, <laughs> But the, you know, sheer amount of like positive comments, I don't think there was a single negative one. Yeah. Um, and I read like every single, single one under the post. And I just was so um, touched by, yeah, just all of the messages it's crazy like but how much shame I had yeah accumulated after all that time I mean it's really 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 brave right to do that and such a such an inspiration I think to so many other people out there who saw you do that I hope so oh for sure (laughs) for sure it's hard like you open yourself up to everybody yeah and and you know the point I wanted to which was really nice one of my uh co-workers actually uh Mateen who runs our uh considerate show came to me and just said I just I want to come out I'm I'm straight list and then I was like thank you and I just like that was such an emotional thing for me because that's ultimately sort of what I wanted to to message it's just you know like we make up these arbitrary boxes and and rules um and you know I was sort of thinking even you know through my own family and you know why do I have to talk to my parents about who I have sex with but my sister doesn't right like it just shouldn't be on anyone to make well because we assume right like we assume that people are straight but what if we came out as straight then people wouldn't assume you know who you are and you wouldn't have to like be like by the way I'm not what you think I am but I think that's also changing I don't know in New York it's probably one of the most progressive cities but where parents are sort of raising their kids saying like we're gonna wait for her or him to say you know I'm interested not assume like oh this is your boyfriend or like oh do you like him or stuff like that it's changing so much but I also wonder I think that we have a very New York perspective of that totally oh my god totally my niece in Georgia it's completely different right? right in the south Mm. And what? And I still think that she has a lot of friends uh, that are gay that still haven't come out yet. You know what I mean? Wow. That they're at the end of high school, wow. and they feel like the pressure to, to to stay. You know what I mean? In the closet, right? Yeah, and I even have friends, you know, who are married to women and they're women, and they said, oh, "I I hate when people call me a lesbian," and that was so interesting. I was like, "Oh wow, I would have called you a lesbian." Like, I had to, <laughs> but she was like, "No, like." I love a woman right now and like I probably won't ever sleep with a guy but like I don't even like that term it's like it's a label that other people put on me but that doesn't even like I identify in so many million other ways one of my friends who's gay was saying that he was you know at a, at an, a party or an event with all these young folks and they thought that he was so old school because he only slept with men you know what I mean <laughs> and that that it's like this generation's completely yeah. completely different and are like don't label me yeah. don't you know my it may change yeah and that's totally cool yeah I you know what I think I've always thought this way I, so I came out as a vegetarian when I was <laughs> six and I've always felt that that sex is like food. Like we make a big deal about sex. Like who you choose to sleep with and who you make it life with is like this self, it's this like hugely defining characteristic. But like people don't like, 
it, you know, I eat meat, you don't eat meat. Like I, you know, this is, there's a spectrum, right? And even vegetarians, like some vegetarians, like love vegetables, like can't get enough of it. will never eat meat. Some vegetarians are like, yeah, if there's like meat on the side of it, like it's okay. I can still eat it. Some people are vegan. Some people are rot, right? There's like, so, and that could change, right? For four years I was a vegan. And then I just decided that now I like meat and I just eat chicken all day. Um, right? Like to me, sexual preferences and who you want to be with and love is just like what you love in terms of food, right? But we make this, yeah, we make this a huge political, moral, you know, self-defining, all-encompassing thing when in reality, it's just about preferences. It's interesting. I think from a cultural perspective too, we seem to have gotten uh, more progressive about our views on this faster than I would have thought. Mm, you know what I mean? Sure. It's and if you look at everything else, it's kind of been slow, right? Yeah. In, 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 in moving. But this has been something that I think the vast majority of the American public's like, Okay, yeah. I don't really care who you sleep with. Yeah, I, I do wonder for kids growing up. I mean, if I just think about if I had seen so many people openly, Janelle Monet being I'm pansexual, yeah. and you know, even like Miley Cyrus, like just that that this sort of embrace of this yeah no label sort of thing. I, I wonder how that would have impacted me growing if if that would have happened when I was like twelve or thirteen when these. I started becoming For sure. aware. I mean, even growing up, you know, growing up South Asian, it was it was weird if you didn't date anybody who was South Asian. Like, yeah, you know, there, we were right. so marred kind of in identity politics, I think, in the 80s and 90s right. and 2000s that right. it's very different now. Right. We would have right. had probably very different lives. So I will always like to close with uh, what is your brave, not perfect moment? Oh, my God. Can you just tell me it? Or do you feel like you have another one? So I go on TV every week and... People ask me, do you get nervous? And I'm like, every single freaking time. <laughs> like, every time. Every single time my heart beats. Even if I'm saying one thing, even if I, it's a topic I know everything about, my heart always beats in my chest. And there's always a part of me that I'm going to do it wrong. But I always do it anyways, right? And there's always, I always fumble on a word. I'm, you know, I'm French-Canadian, so I'll say some weird thing. Once I tried to say Braille, you know, like, and I said, and it's still up there on television. Some people, uh, I said like, uh, and I just literally did like a 10 second fumble and like, who cares? It's there forever. Okay. Whatever. Whatever. Right. Yeah. Like I think embracing, and I used to obsess, like you'd listen to every appearance and think about all the mistakes I'd made. And I would literally lie there and, and, th- I, and I couldn't sleep at night. And then I just decided like, no, sir. No more of that. Yeah. Not doing that anymore. Um, I don't. I don't have to be perfect. No one is. And what a joy to be. I also think it's like so joyful to be afraid to do something because it means that you actually yeah. care. Totally. You know, it's almost like when you stop getting afraid and you start yeah. phoning it in. It's when it's time probably to go. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. And like that is usually the sign when I felt like yeah, I'm not progressing or thing that I'm doing, I need to stop doing it or I need to start saying no to it or I need to move on. Like it's the, yeah, when I don't have that heart pounding um, thing, then I'm not evolving. Yeah, Yeah. I'm not uncomfortable. I'm not trying something new. Well, thank you, Liz. This is great. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Brave Not Perfect. Got a question for me? Send us a note at bravenotperfectpodcast at gmail.com or call in directly via the Anchor app on your phone. Until next time, this has been an episode of Brave Not Perfect with me, Reshma Sajani.